This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is the Friday Sports Edition of Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, it's win or go home for the PNG national women's soccer team, whose World Cup hopes rest on Sunday's qualifying match with Panama in Auckland. Two games, basically a semi-final final football, it's straight knockout. We also look at which Pacific nations are competing at tomorrow's World Cross Country Championships, some of which for the very first time. First timers ever out of the country, never been on a plane before, never seen McDonald's or Kentucky Chicken, so they were pretty happy when we dropped <laughs> off at those places on the way out to Bathurst yesterday. And Kansas City's Super Bowl win might have marked the end of the American football season, but it might just be taking off in PNG. We learn all about its growing popularity in the Pacific and more today on the show. I'm Kyle Evans, so glad to have your company. But first, a spot in the Women's World Cup final will be up for grabs this weekend, and the Pacific is just a step away from cementing history. But to get there, Papua New Guinea, the best team in Oceania, has to first get through Panama on Sunday. As Talia Olatia reports, it will be a chance for Oceania to make its mark on the international stage. After winning Oceania's top spot last year, it's now D-Day for Papua New Guinea's women's football team. And head coach Spencer Pryor says the stakes don't get any higher than a World Cup berth. Two games. Basically, it's semi-final, final football. It's straight knockout. I think we've got maybe seven or eight new players in this squad that haven't been in the national team before. So... They've integrated really well. The seniors have been really gauging and getting everybody in and treating everybody the same. It's been a really good, safe environment where everybody's been made to feel welcome. The great thing about the new ones that are coming in is they've had no exposure to this sort of environment before. So there's certainly no element of fear within them because they don't have any expectations, which is great. Papua New Guinea need to win two games to qualify for the World Cup, the first of which will come against Panama on Sunday. We're probably going to need to use as many of them as possible if we're successful to get get to the World Cup. It's highly unlikely that we would be able to win these two matches back-to-back in such a short turnaround with the same 11 players for potentially 240 minutes if you're factoring in extra time in both games. So we've tried to make sure that we've got two position, two players per position and everybody understands their roles and responsibilities in that, whether they're starting in the first game or they're going to be coming on. So everybody knows their roles and responsibilities when it, within it. It will also be a test for Spencer Pryor, who only took on the coaching role after Nicola Demain was sacked after winning the qualifying tournament in Fiji, with Cyclone Gabrielle also affecting the side's training preparations last week when it struck in Auckland. We're not going to be able to go into the game and actually win it in the first 45 minutes. But, you know, if we show fear and a bit of complacency or waiting to see what's going to happen. We could certainly lose it in the first 45 minutes. So we're kind of breaking the game down, first 15 minutes, next block of 10 minutes, then the rest of the first half. And really just making sure that we're super competitive. If we get our chances, we take them. 
but we certainly make sure that, you know, we we try and win our individual battles. Raylene Baolua has been named captain for the tournament and defender Margaret Joseph says this game will be the biggest of her life. I've played for the Under-20 Women's World Cup back in PNG 2016. And this, like, because we were hosting, so we were automatically to qualify for it. But this one, we have to qualify for it. So it's like another, the level is a bit higher than what, I'm expecting so um, we'll just take what we've learned there to now what we're going through. Meanwhile Callista Maneo who will be putting on the jersey for the first time is taking her motivation from her children who will be watching eagerly from home. The message to me is they say go mama because I have um, five kids so they say go mother go mama go mama. <laughs> Touching stuff there. That's PNG's Callista Mineo ending that report from Talia Olatea. And PNG takes on Panama on Sunday. Now for more on the FIFA Women's World Cup qualifiers, which are taking place in New Zealand, we're joined by Jamie Wall from the Oceania Football Confederation. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. Now, before we get to the uh, on-the-field stuff, let's let's quickly talk weather. So over the past week, New Zealand has been battered by Cyclone Gabrielle uh, and then a magnitude 6 earthquake, just to top things off. Um, how, how, have these, how has this weather affected the hosting of the tournament? Uh, well, I can assure you, sitting here in Auckland right now, it's an absolutely beautiful day. Uh, so I don't think it's going to affect um, the games being held here over the weekend. But yes, you're right. It has been uh, not just a horrible last couple of weeks. It's actually been a pretty rubbish summer all, all round. Um, it's, it's never really arrived uh, until today. And um, there are a lot of people doing it tough uh, down the country. Um, Auckland had floods uh, a couple of weeks ago which is actually wasn't even the cyclone that just hit um that was a different weather event um and so that that was actually probably the main damage done to the to the city of auckland and 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 hamilton which is just to the south uh but we've had a fortnight now to to clean up from that and um and the grounds themselves i went out to north harbour stadium where the the png game is going to be played on saturday Speaking uh, Sunday rather, and and it's and it's looking pretty good. Speaking of the uh, grounds, out out of curiosity, is it can it still be a beautiful game with the with the waterlogged pitch soccer? Oh, I think so. I think so. I was up in Fiji for the for our OSC under seventeen tournament, um, and we had a game played between Fiji and Tonga that was played in uh, what you call biblical uh, rain conditions, <laughs> uh, and um, and yeah, okay, it wasn't exactly uh, the same sort of. Uh, spectacle that you'd see on a Premier League pitch perhaps, but uh, it was still engaging enough um, for for it to be a really uh, excellent watch. So as long as um, the players are prepared to put up with um, the conditions that are going to get thrown at them, then yeah, it, it definitely can work. Uh, but like I said, um, the weather is looking pretty good for the weekend, so I don't think we're going to be dealing with those sort of conditions. Now, I know PNG's been, uh, they've been in, in the country for a little while now, just in terms of preparation. Has that preparation been disrupted at all by, by the rain? Have they still been able to get out and train the, the same way they usually would? Uh, yeah, they've been here for, I think it's almost a month now, um, based down in a new high-performance um, sports setup in Wellington. Um, and uh, then they've, they've moved up here in the last uh, week or so. Um, I believe they had a, they had a, a warm-up game on last Sunday, 
that happened just before the worst of the weather really started to hit. Like it wasn't a great day, but they were still managed to be able to play it. Um, I, and then they had a couple of trainings uh, called off earlier in the week as well. But um, the Panama team that they're playing are very much in the same boat. So um, it's disrupted It's disrupted everybody. Um, but in saying that, there are still enough facilities, obviously, here in Auckland where they can make up for it. Uh, obviously, it's not the same as getting out on a pitch, um, but there are there has obviously been the ability to have gym sessions, um, pool sessions, things like that. Now, it's a historic match for uh, Papua New Guinea. We've made a lot of it uh, so far, taking on Panama, who last I checked were about number 57 in the world. Uh, PNG, is it safe to say they'll be the underdogs going in? Yep, I think so. I'd, I'd love to be able to tell you something about this Panama team, but um, I can't. <laughs> I, I, haven't, uh, I haven't. I'm not really, I can't say I'm really across uh, any of the other teams that are playing in this tournament, but obviously seen a lot of PNG having uh, attended the entire Women's Nations Cup last year where they were very impressive, um, very professional in the way they went about things. Um, but as we heard in that that clip you just played before that I believe it was Margaret um, Joseph, uh, one of their more senior players, said that this is going to be a big step up um, for them. This is uh, the highest level any Papua New Guinea women's team um, has ever played. Uh, and under the and and given that New Zealand has automatically qualified uh, for the tournament by being co-hosts along with Australia, uh, that's given PNG this this way in. And so it's been it's quite a big opportunity for them to shine. Um, on the world stage. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Um, given, even though we don't really know that much about this Panama team, it is fair to say that they probably do get a lot more higher level of competition um, in their confederation over there uh, on, on a more regular basis as well, considering the restrictions that have been on travel in this part of the world over the last couple of years. Like That to me is probably the biggest um, the biggest issue. Uh, for this PNG team. However, they have had a solid enough build-up um, in this to, I, I would definitely give them a fighting chance. You're listening to Pacific Beats Sporting Edition. I'm Kyle Evans. On the show with me is Jamie Wall from the Oceania Football Confederation. He's talking to me about the FIFA World Cup qualifiers taking place this weekend in New Zealand, which uh, which PNG are playing in. Just to refresh things uh, for the listeners, Jamie, so this is basically a win or go home situation, is it? In order to qualify for this World Cup, they've got to A, beat Panama on Sunday, and they've got to win one more match after that. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of an interesting um, uh, tournament. There's there's a few there's a there's an odd number of teams as well, um, and then of course you've got uh, New Zealand who are playing a, a, a run of friendlies uh, against uh, Argentina uh, and Portugal um, in there as well. So it's all kind of been um, lumped together to kind of showcase uh, women's football in this in the in the area and uh, build up some build up a bit of attention uh, for when the the main show kicks off in, in June which I'm sure uh, we'll all be paying a lot more a lot of attention to one of the things I love about these win or go home situations particularly in soccer you know you do you can often see the underdogs get up you know they maybe maybe they can play a defensive sort of game force a penalty shootout something like that I mean is that a possibility for PNG to get through that way or something Oh, absolutely. I think um, if you uh, that interview we had with Spencer uh, the other day uh, that you played before, uh, you know, he 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 really kind of mapped out a lot of what the, the way that they're going to approach it without giving away too much. But I love the way he said, you know, we've broken it down to blocks. You know, get through the first fifteen minutes, see where we're at, then sort of start to do things in the next fifteen. 
And he was very honest and upfront about, like, you know, we could lose this in the first half. So I think we'll probably see a, see a pretty defensive game from them. We'll talk to Margaret uh, as well about that sort of thing. And um, she was quite um, quite adamant that communication and, and speed on defence was going to be their main weapon that they're going to use. Uh, perhaps they might physically, you know, be a bit, little bit bigger than their opponents and they might want to use that to their advantage. So if they can lock that away and then get the ball up the other end and, you know, just maybe – get a few corners and and knock one in then yeah it's it's totally game on so i i like i said uh i give them i give them a fighting chance and that's probably the best way that they're going to be able to go about and do it and look sometimes playing with house money uh is the best position to be in when it comes to comes to matches like this you st- um you touched on uh spencer before who only joined the team as coach towards the end of last year is that a hard ask in some ways to have a new coach come on board at the at the 11th hour do you think uh, yes and no. Um, we've seen it in a few sports lately where the convention of kind of sticking with uh, a, like a long-term plan has kind of gone out the window. We've seen it in rugby lately. We I think we had three test match coaches sacked within about um, three weeks of each other and replaced with in a World Cup year. So I don't know. Uh, in football, it's obviously it's a bit more bit more normal to see this sort of thing happen. Um, you know, with the uh, with the likes of the Premier League. Kind of setting the setting the example of the way that you'd that, that these things go, but uh, for Spencer, he's coming in with quite um, quite a lot of experience, and you know he's managed to get a pretty good group together. It is it is a slightly different team to the one that uh, won the Women's Nations Cup, but uh, at the same time, you know the backbone of that team is there. So I think that, like I said, he's probably he's definitely identified the strengths of the team, which is um, the defence. That's what won them um, the Women's Nations Cup. They had a very good goal difference. Uh, and so I think that they'll be just looking to build on that um, and, you know, use what he's bringing to the table to sort of complement what they're already very good at. Well, he's certainly got a plan. We heard that as we heard just before. Uh, just lastly today, Jamie, uh, for the listeners in the Pacific, history-making match, how can they watch our Sunday's game? Uh, yes, so it's on um, FIFA Plus, uh, which is FIFA's um, TV channel. I believe it's uh, free to access out in um, the Pacific region. Um, so if you go to fifa.com uh, and you'll be able to find the prompts uh, to get you lo- logged into that and you can watch that online. Fantastic. Well, look, we'll all be watching, uh, you know, with, with hopes, hopes raining. That's for sure. Let's hope they can, uh, let's hope they can put on a good show. Jamie, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Kyle. Not a problem. That was Jamie Wall from the Oceania Football Confederation talking about the PNG national women's team who will be, uh, playing off in probably one of their biggest matches in the nation's history on Sunday against Panama. Well, Pacific Islanders are feeling hopeful they could get the chance to permanently settle in Australia under under a new migration scheme. Legislation tabled in the Australian Parliament yesterday aims to introduce a new Pacific engagement visa. If it passed, it will give 3,000 Pacific Islanders the right to live permanently in Australia. But as Marion Farr reports, becoming one of those 3,000 will be a little like winning the lottery. Solomon Island resident Tiffany Miner would jump at the chance to settle in Australia. I'd like to go and work to support my family back in Solomon Islands. The young mother is hoping she'll get lucky in Australia's new visa lottery. 
Under a scheme tabled in the Australian Parliament yesterday, 3,000 Pacific Islanders will be randomly selected to migrate to the country each year. I have two children, so this is important for their education and also for my own education to go on and do further studies. Solomon Island citizen Frank Zio also wants to be picked. For the new scheme, yeah. I'm really interested to be part of a new scheme. Having recently returned from almost two years working in Australia, he'd love to go back permanently. It's really helpful for our people. The Pacific Engagement Visa was part of the new Australian government's 2022 election promise to bolster ties with the Pacific. Under the scheme, citizens from around the Pacific can apply to be part of the so-called visa lottery. If their name is drawn, applicants will then have to secure a work offer from an Australian employer to be eligible. They'll also have to pass a health check and a character test and be able to speak some English. The scheme is only open to people between the ages of 18 and 45. While some are jumping at the idea of living in Australia, Pacific Affairs expert Dr Tess Newton-Kane thinks it could take a while to kick off. I think it will take a while for people to become aware of it and understand it. She says the government will have to work on raising awareness about the scheme and how it differs from other initiatives like the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme. I think there will need to be quite a lot of work done in Pacific Island countries to ensure that everyone understands what this is. The Australian government is hoping the new scheme will come into effect by July. While the full details are yet to be released, it's understood it'll be open to citizens from a number of Pacific nations and Timor-Leste. Not like, oh, well, there's this many for Papua New Guinea and there's this many for Samoa or whatever else. There are 3,000 available in total. If the scheme gains popularity, Dr Newton Kane says that quota could be easily reached. We'll be waiting to see what this looks like in terms of the detail and what the processes are and how accessible they're going to be to people in the Pacific, and also whether it's something that Pacific Island people are going to warm to. The Australian government says the new visa aims to improve Australia's relationship with the Pacific through bolstering migration. For Fiji citizen Vina Quilla, the message has hit home. I strongly believe it's high time that Australia steps up and, um, and make us uh, understand that we truly are a Pacific family. But the initiative doesn't come without concern in the Pacific. Ms Quiller says it could lead to skilled workers leaving their home countries for good. But with Fiji's struggling economy and rising cost of living, she thinks the benefits will outweigh the costs. There's a lot of people still waiting to work. Um, a few to go to Australia, I would say, is going to help. Fiji citizen Vane Kuwila ending that report by Marian Farr with additional reporting by Kristen Rita, Amanu Leong and Lithay Mavono. Now it's that time of the morning where we're going to jump around the islands and take and use, take a look at what's making headlines around the region. And to do that, I'm joined by my producer Nick Fogarty. Nick, welcome. Morning, Kyle. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Nick. It's uh, it's been hot here in Melbourne, 36 degree, uh, 36 degrees today, I believe. 36 yesterday as well. Uh, yep. Barely getting below 25. And our first story is actually about Australia's weather and specifically how it could continue to be affected by last year's volcanic eruption in Tonga. How's that? 
Yeah, so over the last year and a bit since the Hunga Tonga Hunga Ha'apai eruption in January 2022, we've continued to learn the incredible scientific facts connected with that eruption, uh, like how it propelled an enormous amount of water vapour into the stratosphere, for one. Um, water vapour is a greenhouse gas, which, of course, contribute to global warming. Um, and our own ABC website is reporting that Martin Yucca from the UNSW Climate Change Research Centre is leading a research paper exploring the impacts of the eruption's water vapour on Australian weather. While the paper is still at peer review stage, Dr Yuka says it's still a bit early to provide solid answers on that eruption's weather impact, but they are getting a pretty good idea. I'm baffled at just the amount of research that keeps coming out uh, uh, following this, uh, this volcano. It's quite incredible. Um, what are some of the paper's general findings uh, about that impact? Well, what stands out is the prediction that there could be impacts on temperature for up to eight years because of how long it takes for the particles to clear out of the stratosphere. So Dr. Yuka says they expect a very slight warming influence on average across the globe and a strong warming influence for parts of North America during their winter for the next seven years. Uh, But in Australia, they're expecting the opposite um, due to the way heat circulates around the globe. So this includes a cooling effect for Western Australia during the summer months and Northern Australia during winter. And it might also contribute to a potential rainfall increase in southeast Australia. Uh, Dr. Duca says there is a caveat, though, in that the research doesn't take into account changing ocean conditions uh, with ocean warming and other things also affecting the weather. Yeah, interesting stuff. Now, a bit of a sombre topic next, but one with a uh, a bit of a positive twist. It looks like measles are back in the headlines uh, in Samoa, uh, but a a vaccination campaign is in the works. Yeah, so the Samoa Observer is reporting that the country's Ministry of Health is set to launch a campaign to boost the percentage of measles vaccination in the country. Uh, And this follows a confirmed case of the disease in New Zealand. Uh, Samoa does have a sad history with measles, as we remember in late 2019, when 83 people died in an outbreak uh, and most of them were children. Uh, At the time or after that outbreak, the Samoan government was accused of ignoring mass vaccination advice from its own medical experts ahead of that pandemic. Uh, This time, though, Director-General of Health, Iono Professor Alec Ekaroma, says the country has 82% coverage of the first dose of the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine and 45% coverage of the second dose and that they'll seek to push coverage past 90% and get that second dose up past 80% by June this year. Uh, The professor says that when there's an increase in the number of cases or an epidemic is declared in New Zealand, then Samoa will officially give out alerts for awareness and protection. That's good to hear. Have you ever had uh, measles, Nick? Maybe when I was very young, um, but not in memory. <laughs> I've certainly had chicken pox, but not measles. But I have been vaccinated for it, and I'm going to I'm going to say that's probably helped in that Good sense. So, <laughs> and uh, and back to Australia, where I understand uh, some of PNG's political heavyweights will be meeting uh, with their Australian counterparts. Yeah, just quickly, today is the 29th Australia Papua New Guinea Ministerial Forum in Canberra, which PNG's Foreign Minister Justin Tachenko will be co-chairing with Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong. Uh, They'll also be joined by nine Australian ministers and 16 PNG ministers will also travel there. Uh, Discussions as usual with this forum will focus on the two countries' economic relationship, on strategic cooperation, security and social and human development. And it comes, of course, after the annual Leaders' Dialogue between Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese 
and the PNG Prime Minister, James Marape, which happened in January. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for joining us today on Newswrap. No worries, Kyle. That was Nick Fogarty there joining us for Newswrap. And it's Friday the 17th of February. You are listening to the Friday Sports Edition of Pacific Beat. Uh, If you're just joining us, we've gone in depth into PNG's historic Women's World Cup qualifying match with Panama, which will take place on Sunday. We certainly wish them the best of luck with that. They'll be the underdogs going in. And still to come on today's show, we'll look at the Pacific athletes taking part in tomorrow's World Cross Country Championships in Australia. We'll also learn about Papua New Guinea plans to create a national gridiron team so stick around for that we need to be prepared for the future disasters are inevitable but losing your home or your life isn't cyclone after cyclone every natural disaster gets worse learn what to do before during and after natural disasters in this program aimed at keeping you safe i'm a survivor Pacific Prepared, Fridays at 8.30am PNG time here on ABC Radio Australia. Now, Pacific athletes will take part in one of the world's biggest long-distance running events this weekend when the World Cross Country Championships kicks off in Australia. 12 Pacific nations will line up against 35 others in Bathurst tomorrow, a town that's most famous for Australian motor racing. For some athletes, it will mark the first time they've competed off home soil. And according to Oceana Athletics Association uh, President Yvonne Mullins, the gruelling Mount Panorama track will take no prisoners. I caught up with her a short time ago. 12 countries from Oceania are actually going to be here in, in Mount Panorama and it's going to be a first-time event for, for many of our member federations. In fact, six of them will be here for, for their very first cross-country and uh, that's really exciting for us. They've competed at Oceania cross-countries before and other events in their own member federations, but this is their first time at a world cross-country. Yeah, so I spoke to the chief of the uh, the PNG Athletics Federation a couple of weeks ago and, and yeah, he was telling me that it's going to be their first time in the event since about 1996. They've got about nine athletes competing. Can you take me through some of the other countries uh, that are going to be competing as well as the ones that are, that are going to be competing for the first time? So Solomon Islands and PNG have got teams here for the cross country and it's you know it's fabulous for us to see some teams here because we haven't had many teams ever come to a world cross country and of course being here in the Pacific it means it was a, a great opportunity for them but we've got the Cook Islands heading here one of their athletes is is amongst the oldest male athletes that will be here so he'll be competing. Marshall Islands uh, their first time here. Norfolk Island male and female coming over and again their first time and Tahiti a little bit of a hiccup for them the cyclone in the Pacific meant uh, they've had to delay their their arrival into into Bathurst but hopefully they'll get here today or tomorrow Uh, not the Mariana Islands again and they're very strong in their own home country uh, without a stadia events and the Solomon Islands who are very very happy to be here and you know have a really good strong background in out of state events yeah i understand guam even has a, a bit of representation as well with i think uh, one athlete competing is that right yeah, Guam's got the area champion, one of the area champions, in fact, Ryan Martinez from Guam will be here. So it's great to have Guam here. And, and of course, you know, there's, we've got, as you said, we've got P&G here. Kiribati, the two athletes arrived yesterday from Kiribati, first timers, 
ever out of the country, never been on a plane before, never seen McDonald's or Kentucky chicken. So they were pretty happy when we dropped <laughs> off at those places on the way out to Bathurst yesterday. So it's really exciting for some of these countries. Never, ever had this opportunity before. And to be on a world stage at somewhere is quite incredible as Mount Panorama. I'm standing here looking up to the mountain now. Yeah, we'll talk about the course in just a second. That's got obvious connotations with the V8s, as, as uh, everyone in Australia would know. But with the Pacific Island nations competing in this event, how did it come about? Was it because the event is, is basically being held right on their doorstep in Australia? A lot of the member federations do hold out-of-stadia events in their own countries. Certainly Kiribati not a big country, if uh, you can imagine. It's one of the smaller countries in, in the Pacific. But they do they do 10Ks, they do a 20K run over there. So this is an opportunity. One could say that, you know, not many hills, so that's going to be a bit of a test for a lot of the federations of Oceania because a lot of them are flat. But in terms of being able to to run longer distances, a lot of them do do that. But yes, the opportunity to do a world championship in your own own backyard is, is obviously an enticement to all of them. Now, you mentioned there was 47 countries competing, not many from the Pacific Islands, but how do you expect them to to do? Could we see any potentially, you know, compete for for a medal or anything like that? Or is it more going to be a, a development phase for them? I think it's more a development phase for a number of them. Look, Australia and New Zealand will be hoping uh, for some good results and certainly the Aussies would be hoping to, to pick up a medal in maybe the mixed relay or something. They've, you know, they've got... They've got three of their top athletes here, uh, Stewie McSween, Jess Hull and, and Oliver Hall, who all compete well. They're going to be a chance. But for our member federations from the Pacific Islands, we expect that this will be a great experience for them, an opportunity to, to mix it with the best and to develop the sport when they go back into their own member federations. We're talking to Yvonne Mullins. She's head of the Oceania Athletics Association. We're talking about all about the World Cross Country Championships. will be taking place in Bathurst this weekend. Now, Yvonne, Bathurst as you would know, in Australia has some some pretty heavy connotations with car racing, uh, specifically the V8 supercars, a very famous race which takes place every year. Is this the first time that the the course is going to be transformed uh, for a cross-country event? I don't believe it's ever been a cross-country event previously, so, you know, this is going to be a big deal for for here. And it's tough. It's going to be a tough course. It's uh, like driving around Panorama is tough. I think this is equally going to be as tough for our athletes who are who are going to be running across country. Yeah, I mean, I've never been there personally. What's it look like? Is it is it very hilly? And, and I imagine some of it's probably going to be off-road. I, I can't imagine all of it will be on the, uh, on, the, on the Mount Panorama course. It's actually in the middle of the, of the circuit. It's all in the middle of the circuit. There's a winery that they run through. There's a man-made billabong that they run through. So it's going to be, it's going to be pretty impressive. It's going to be a spectacular course for them. When you say they run through a billabong, so what, that, that means what, sort of knee-height water or something like that? Yeah, there'll be a billabong they run around and there'll be a few kangaroos and it'll be typically Australian. So it'll be, for, for a lot of the, the athletes, they'll have never seen this type of, uh, this type of terrain before. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. I don't know how it's going to play out, but we've got some mass participation events here, some school athletes. We've also got the World Masters athletes who'll be here as well doing their, their events. I understand it's going to become an Olympic sport uh, sometime in the near future. Do you think it's something that Pacific Islanders could potentially forge a future in? You know, you, you look at places like P&G who can train at altitude uh, and you think maybe this is an opportunity for them. A lot of middle distance runners that we don't even know about in the Pacific. So this is a really good opportunity. You know, Fiji and P&G have always had good, strong athletes, uh, you know, from 
running in middle distance and we see them at the Pacific Games every year and we'll be seeing them again this year at the Pacific Games. So cross-country, uh, the president of World Athletics always says that, uh, you know, cross-country is the basis for any good long-distance runners. So this is a chance for us to get them out there and maybe improve their, their track running as well. Can't wait to see what happens. That was Oceana Athletic Association boss Yvonne Mullins, who spoke to me a short time ago. Now, in Papua New Guinea, there is a new sport that is taking hold. Since 2020, excuse me, the popularity of American flag football has grown and the country's federation now has more than 200 young people involved. Our reporter, Jordan Fennell, spoke with Tim- Timothy Dom Jim and the PNG a- AFF president, who says he hopes to build a national team to compete in the international championships. American football court itself is new to Papua New Guinea. So uh, we are, at the moment, we are on flag football. Flag football is the uh, non-contact version of the uh, tackle football. Uh, so uh, since uh, the program is new to Papua New Guinea, we are on flag football. So uh, up, at the, up in Chimbu, um, we will uh, run uh, flag football tryouts where we will invite the youths and even uh, school kids who are in- interested in uh, uh, participating in the program. We will invite them over and then uh, we will teach them basics of uh, American football non-contact person, which is uh, flag football to the youth and students. Uh, that's our target at the moment. Tell me a little bit about why PNG is best placed to have a flag football league. Why is it such a, I guess it's had quite a good reception from a lot of young people. Why do you think that is? Uh, because PNG is known, I mean, we we have been playing rugby league as our national sport ever since the, the sport was introduced. So, uh, uh, you know, probably they're like running game and they're like physical and they're like being mean. So uh, to get football over here, it's quite easy because uh, it's that uh, the, the rules, the, the game being played, it's quite similar to rugby league. So um, that's why the youth here and even the kids, they're, they're quite, uh, quite kind of like the game. And um, you're saying that you yourself are a volunteer as the president of the PNG AFF. What's your particular love of the of, of the American football? Where does it come from? Why are you so interested in it? And why did you choose to become the, the president of the federation? Actually, I was uh, playing at the uh, end or uh, tackle football back in the Philippines while I was studying at Adamson University in the Philippines. From there, um, I learned that sport. I fall in love with that sport. Uh, and I came back to PNC in 2017. I found out that uh, the pro, uh, the football code is not here. I mean, it was not being introduced here in Papua New Guinea. So I've uh, decided to, you know, get in as a volunteer and um, fund the entire program and um, started it off from ground zero up. Oh, wow. So you started it by yourself? Yes. Yes, by myself. I am I'm actually the sole founder of the entire federation. Oh, my goodness. So how does it feel to see how big it's expanded so far? I'm very impressed with the program here and uh, the love of football code is really growing. So I'm, I'm really happy and I'm super excited about it. Um, in terms of getting funding and equipment for people to use, um, where is that coming from at the moment for the PNG AFF? For funding... Uh, to be, uh, to be, uh, to be truthful, uh, we we don't have any fund. Uh, well, we don't get any support from anywhere. Uh, most of the funding we uh, normally comes out from our own pocket. Uh, but uh, just recently, we had uh, digital PNG coming on board, uh, supporting the flag football tournament here in Port Mosby. And then just today, we have signed a uh, 
a sponsorship agreement with the Corsi Hotel here in Port Mosby as well to uh, support our flag football program tournament here in uh, Port Mosby and in Lai. And I understand you plan to enter the IFAF Asia Oceania Flag Football Championships in Malaysia later this year in November. How are preparations going for that? Uh, at the moment, we have a training squad from the previous two tournaments. So uh, we have everything. We have players who are ready to uh, play and uh, participate in the tournament. But uh, the thing that we are so mindful of right now is uh, the sponsor. You know, We need a sponsor to sponsor the national team to uh, participate in the uh, the big tournament. And how much will it cost to send a whole the whole national team to Malaysia to compete? It will cost around 10 players plus uh, three officials with uh, merchandise and everything, uh, travelling and accommodation, everything. It will cost around uh, 150,000 kina. And alongside uh, planning to go to the, the football championships uh, later in the year, um, what other plans do you have for the PNG AFF uh, Football Federation coming along for 2023? Do you plan to expand into more regions or, or what's happening? Uh, yes, uh, we are planning to extend to all the centres of Papua New Guinea. Right now, we are we have our presence in three provinces. In the next uh, couple of years, time, we want to reach out to all the 22 provinces. And then our big and the ultimate goal is to uh, take the PNG team in flag football representing Papua New Guinea to the um, Olympics in Los Angeles. That will be the inaugural uh, flag football competition in the Olympics, so we are looking forward to that. Uh, that, that, that that's our biggest uh, dream here. Yeah, fascinating journey there. Let's hope that dream can be realised. That was Timothy Dom Jim, the president of the PNG American Football Federation, with big plans to head to the 2028 Los Angeles Olympics. And he was speaking there to Jordan Fennell. Well, at the height of her swimming career, Anna-Lisa Monipo-Jane represented Papua New Guinea at the Beijing Olympics. But now, the retired athlete and mum is devoting her time to helping up-and-coming sports stars improve their performance, and in more ways than one. By starting a a new career in sports counselling, she hopes to teach athletes how to listen to their bodies and develop their lives beyond the world of sport. Marion Farr has been speaking to Annalisa about her future plans and about how, how her sporting career began, recalling how her sports career began when a swimming coach suggested she swim in an Olympic-sized pool. Thinking about it, I could see why that would be pressure, but in that moment, I think I never felt any pressure from my parents. They were like, if you want to do it, we'll support you, but I was never pushed. If anything, I put pressure on myself I think once I started making international teams and I was like, okay, I want to work harder and stronger so I can eventually make it to the Olympics. What was it like for you competing for your country at the Olympic Games? It was honestly one of the most memorable and amazing experiences. I was fortunate enough to be in the village for three weeks and because swimming's in the first week of competition, Once I did my race, I was then able to relax and enjoy all the other sports and just soak in the Olympic experience of seeing so many different world-class athletes. Fast forward, you retired from swimming in 2012 and you've discovered a new passion recently in counselling. I ended up in a role at UQ Sport as Elite Athlete Program Coordinator. And in that role, I was able to support some of the scholarship holders and other elite athletes managing their study timetables. And it was in that space where I was like, oh, my gosh, this is really amazing. I love being able to give back and support to athletes in a way that helps them not just as an athlete, but as a person. And I think that was sort of the first moment of realisation where I wanted to go more down that counselling pathway. 
So Annalisa, why is there a need and how important is counselling in the careers of professional athletes? For me personally, when I was swimming, obviously I heard about sports psychology, all that sort of stuff. But for me, it was always around bettering your performance within that sport. And for me personally, what I want to be able to provide to athletes out there is not just to better themselves in sport, but to better themselves as a person. There's a lot of expectations as an athlete. What are you doing for you? What are you doing for your team? But I just want to be a person who's there supporting them as them because sport's not going to be with you forever, not competing at an, at an elite level anyways. So I think it's important for athletes to have a good sense of their self within sport and outside of sport. And some of the areas I know for me personally where I found it more difficult was being at university, studying full-time and training and competing full-time. Like that was a really difficult two things to juggle there. And also obviously when you finish the sport and how you leave the sport, that can be really difficult for a lot of athletes and even if you're a successful sports person and then you leave it's it can still be difficult to then be able to transition into quote unquote you know normal everyday life especially if you've got such a strong attachment and self-identity towards being an athlete and that's why I feel it's so important with the services that I'm going to provide through counselling as well as, you know, some of the amazing people out there as well. And even just within the athlete wellbeing space, there is so much growth there within the last couple of years, which is amazing. And I just want to be part of that and give back to athletes and sport because it's given so much to me. Within the sports world, what do you see as some of the major challenges facing women when it, when it comes to their own wellbeing as a professional athlete? There's the obvious thing about around body image and how that topic is discussed with athletes and the different expectations on a male athlete and a female athlete. You know, I think I was fortunate enough that I didn't have any negative experiences around body image and I feel like that's pretty difficult being a swimmer as well because, I mean, you're walking around in your togs <laughs> a lot of the time. But thankfully, I think I was confident in myself and my own body image. I had a lot of positive role models to look up to, so that wasn't an issue for me. But I have been watching in the news and hearing stories of female athletes struggling either with period pain, endometriosis, and, you know, some of the coaching staff or sporting staff not fully understanding how that is on a woman's body and then expecting them to compete at a certain level. And, you know, obviously men don't have to go through that. Annalisa, it's fantastic to hear that you didn't personally struggle with body image issues throughout your swimming career. But what did your career in swimming teach you about your body? I think I discovered early on to be able to listen to my own body and really be in tune with what I was physically capable of. And I think it's quite a hard balance because, you know, you're told to, you know, really push yourself. And I mean, you need to push yourself to be able to, you know, train your muscles, both physically and mentally. But I think there's a fine line in the difference when it's too far. And I think, you know, if you're you know, physically sick, you know, with a cold or injuries, to really be able to listen to your body and realise when you're pushing it to better your sporting performance or if you push too hard and your body's actually really asking you to stop or seek help. So for me, that was my thinking around it. Like if I'm not 
where I can train 100%. And if my body is telling me I need to take a break, I will take a break. And I never felt any guilt around that, whereas I did see a lot of my teammates feeling guilty if they were a little bit sick and they were like, oh, no, I just have to go training. That was Olympic swimmer and sports counsellor Annalisa Mopio-Jane speaking with Marion Farr. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. We'll be back on Monday morning. That's 6am PNG time. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm. Stay tuned on ABC Radio Australia because the news is next. Have a great day.